We should never confuse being moral with being a Christian, but we cannot claim to be Christian if we ignore morality. Those are the words of David Garland. But this is kind of a section, a practical section of scripture that Paul brings us to this morning where he's basically saying morality and Christianity are not one and the same thing. And certainly you don't become a Christian by being moral. But he's actually saying the opposite. If you are a Christian, if Christ has given you a new heart because you've been buried with him and you've been raised with him to walk in newness of life. You have everything you need right now to walk in this new ethic, in this new nature. So what we're coming into is actually a section that if you're familiar with the writings of Paul, who wrote many, many letters to many churches, many individuals, he often starts with some pretty hardcore theology where he is teaching you about God and the work of Jesus and what that means for you. And then he turns mid-letter and he becomes more practical in many ways. And what we come to this morning in verse five, when you see that word therefore at the beginning of verse five, he's saying, let's look back at Colossians chapter one and two. Let's remember that this good news comes with a therefore. The indicative statements that I've been giving to you come with an imperative. You know, there's a gospel, yes, there's a good news, but that gospel demands a response. So another writer says in Paul's writing, theology is always called with, is always followed by a call to live it out. Now, a couple weeks ago, I invited you to imagine that you were on a team mid-season, a sports team, and your team's two and 10, or just something atrocious, and suddenly, mid-season, before the trade deadline, you get traded to a team that's now 10 and 2. So your identity has been completely changed. You're headed to the playoffs. And just like it would be foolish for you to continue to live as if, well, my record is 2 and 10, you would be foolish to not recognize the work that Christ has done to transfer you from your old self that you earned your old record and he has given you something new by his kindness and you should live that out. So there's a negative and a positive side to this. Putting off, putting on is what he's gonna talk about. We're gonna look at one side of that this week and Lord willing, the other side next week. Um, but if you're not already there, let me invite you to Colossians chapter three. Our text for this morning is verses five through 11. I'm gonna back up to verse one just so we get a little bit of context, a little bit of running start. This is what we looked at two weeks ago beginning in verse one, where he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, that is your old person has died, and your life now is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And now here's this new section, verse five. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, 
seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is, is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Now, there's kind of four points we're going to go through this morning. They're not alliterated. There's a command here. There's a reason for that command. There's an ability to do that command, and there's a result. So beginning here, a big chunk where this text centers around is, as I said, Paul is shifting from indicatives of the gospel, just declarations of great news in Christ that's true, whether you believe it or not. And he's now shifting to an imperative or a set of imperatives, a set of commands. And here's the the command, if I were to summarize. He's saying, put off everything that is characteristic of this earthly nature and culture. Put off everything that is characteristic of basically a nature and a culture that is set against God or just alienated from God. And most of us see three or four categories or kind of groupings of sins that Paul is calling us here to put off. So I'm going to go over those, kind of what are those categories, just general categories. And then I want to circle back, of like, what is this idea of putting something to death? So verse 5, you see this first group. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And these are all, category one, sins of desire. These are all sins of desire. And I think it's interesting that Paul begins there because the very first sin that the Bible ever documents is when Eve is there with Adam, but then apart from Adam in the Garden of Eden, and Satan goes to Eve and he tempts her with the one thing that God told her not to eat. And we read all the way back in Genesis 3, verse 6. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and sin entered the world. And what's interesting there is that all sounds pretty harmless. She saw something good. She desired it in her heart. She realized this will do something positive for me, so I want that. And instead of taking her life and submitting it to the authority of God's word, and of course she didn't have this book, she just literally, God's speaking to them and saying, do anything you want, touch anything you want, eat anything you want, except for that. And now because of desire, where she's just simply like, well, I want that, that looks good to me, She throws away the word of God that she had and she desired and she sinned, okay? Ever since then, ever since that first sin, and especially in this arena of sexuality, which is what Paul's initially talking about, humans have continued to do the same thing. Just say, that looks good to me. I want that experience. I'm going to do this thing because it's what I want. And Paul actually uses five different words here, a couple of them are two words. Um, the first is, he says, sexual immorality, which is the Greek word porneia. You can obviously hear certain English words in that, that we think of certain material or certain experiences being pornography or pornographic, okay? Back in this time, in Greek culture, in Roman culture, in Jewish culture, this word represented any kind of sexual activity outside of a heterosexual monogamous marriage. That's what the word meant. So it included 
you know, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, and a whole bunch of other things that would make you even more uncomfortable about if I started talking about them, okay? But it's just a catch-all word. And it's basically saying, here is this relationship that God has blessed creation with, marriage. And within that marriage, God has given this beautiful gift. If you're exercising this gift outside of that context, it is this Greek word, porneia, or sexual immorality. Okay, second word, impurity. He's still talking about this same area of sexuality, but this kind of focuses on the, the immoral or the unclean nature of certain things that we try to do sexually. And we still, as, as, uh, as much as our culture is just permissive and would say this is very prudish conversation this morning, we still think of like dirty movies and dirty magazines of filth, of smut, and these words are still used to describe certain things. That's kind of the idea that Paul has here, that there are certain desires that if they go unchecked in the human heart, they actually are immoral and unclean. They're doing damage to you, okay? Now, the third word, passion, is probably more where our culture would like to park. The Greek word pathos, and many of you have heard that word before, ethos and pathos. Path, pathos is the idea of intense, excited feelings of ecstasy that often accompany strong physical desires. And our culture kind of lives there, and we're like, yeah, I was just, you know, it was just a night of passion. You know, I just, I just got carried away, and it was exciting. It was thrilling. There was an adrenaline rush. It was so great. And, and Paul is actually using that word, understanding human nature, that sometimes those passions, those intense feelings can be very, very good, but sometimes they can be very, very dangerous. Now, third, uh, fourthly, he talks about evil desires, actually two words. What's interesting, the word there, desires, is just simply a word that if you have, in the Greek language, if you have a thumia, you have a desire. The word that Paul uses here is epithumia, which is literally an over-desire. And the point is, God's not sitting here saying, hey, the problem is that your desires are just rotten to the core. Like, all of your desires are wicked. He's not saying that. Because very often, and you know this, very often your desires are for good things. Your desires are for beautiful things like marriage, like having children, like having a steady job, like having income that allows you to take care of your own needs and help someone else as well. So we have a mix of healthy and unhealthy desires. What he's pointing out here with this particular word is it becomes dangerous when any desire, even for good things, becomes an, a, a controlling desire. It becomes so over-desired that now you're like, I need to have that, which leads to the next word and the last word of this section, which is the word covetousness or greed, just the strong desire to possess more. And again, it's not necessarily that you're greedy or you're covetous for something that's just on its face, evil or dark or sinister. It's that you can't control. You're not reigning in that lust for something more and then something more, often to the point of exploitation, okay? Now, I know that this first section sounds, as I said before, very prudish to a modern or progressive culture where we celebrate virtually anything sexually, where a gender can be, I don't even know how many categories there are anymore, but we have a culture that has just spiraled into all kinds of, we would think, new thinking, 
uncharted waters when it comes to sexuality and gender, but actually the fact that Paul's using five words to describe this one thing, and it's where he's leading off, actually shows you that what we deal with in our culture right now must have been very similar to what Paul was facing in his Greco-Roman culture in Colossae, which actually kind of proves Paul's point that rampant desires of all different kinds are one of the things that are at the heart of what it means to be earthly instead of to be spiritual or a Jesus follower, okay? So here's my question for you before I move on from this little section. What do you desire so intensely? And again, it can be, you, you could say on, the, on its face, I know this is a desire for something unhealthy, but others of you may say, how, how can you tell me that's not a good desire? But the question again here, what do you desire so intensely you're willing to disregard the clear teaching of God's word in order to get it? That you would be willing to set the Bible aside and just say, I have to have that thing, that experience, that relationship. Now going on, verse eight, this brings us to the second category. He says, put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And the second category, if the first is sins of desire, the second is sins of division, is what he's talking about. Now, anger and wrath, the first two, they're very similar. I think the difference between anger and wrath is the difference between like burning your house down and blowing your house up. One just happens a lot more explosively, but has the same net effect, okay? Just the, the wrath is just this, this explosion of what you feel in your heart, which may otherwise have been a simmering anger. Malice is going a step further, which is like a hostility or a hatred in your heart, often found probably plotting or maybe even like praying that harm would come to someone else. That's the idea of maliciousness. And then slander, I think we know what slander is. It's the idea of damaging someone else with lies. It's not just gossip. Like, I I probably shouldn't be saying this about this person who isn't here, but I'm gonna say it anyway, because it's true. Well, slander is kind of that, plus it's not true, or it's leading people to a false conclusion or a false impression about someone else. That's slander. And then obscene talk, we think of like, filthy talk, but I think in this context, it's more a reference to abusive speech. And obscenity can be like a dirty four-letter word, but an obscenity can also be like taking God's name in vain and devaluing him, okay? But we can speak in obscenity when we tear someone else down and treat them as less than who they are as someone who bears the image of God, okay? So I say these are sins of division, Because you don't have to interact with our culture for very long before you realize we are an angry, wrathful, malicious, slanderous, obscene culture. We are. And what does that produce in our society right now? You can see it all over the place. We don't just disagree with people. We demonize people. We vilify people. If someone disagrees with the way I think politically or about sexuality, which we just touched on. It's not just like, well, we're going to have to agree to disagree, but we can remain friends. It's like that person is insane. Okay. And it leads to conflict. It leads to divorce. It leads to division. It leads to polarization where now we have all these different sets of us versus them and contention and strife. 
And my question before I move on here is, who are you so mad at that you resent them in your heart and you wish evil on them? Because that's what Paul is saying. You need to learn to recognize this, especially at the early stages of like, I'm angry, warning. You know, and sometimes we, we're, we're quick to say, well, mine's the righteous indignation kind of stuff. And maybe it is. But make sure that we're doing that self-evaluation to say, Lord, am I, am I now explosively angry? Am I now plotting malice in my heart and speaking evil of them because of how I've been hurt? Okay? Going on here, verse 9, he simply says, do not lie to one another. This is the third category, which are sins of deceit. Now, I don't need a whole lot of explanation there. You know what it is to lie. You know what it is to leave a false impression with someone and to backtrack and be like, well, I didn't actually lie. The word that he uses here, like porneia in terms of sexuality, is a, it's, a, it's a general catch-all word. And it's like, guys, you know what you're doing, okay? And, and to say, well, I didn't technically lie, but to deceive, to create a false impression, it's all summarized under this word that Paul uses here. And again, you, you just take one glance at what's earthly in our culture today, and you see that lying is everywhere. I mean, people make careers out of lying. We, we got fact checkers now for everything, and they're like, uh, you know, big time liar over here. And if they were to take the same standard and apply it probably to their own side of whatever, you'd find big time lying there, okay? It's just as common as breathing for some people just to lie about everything. So my question is, where have you done this? Where have you intentionally deceived someone or left a false impression, especially in order to advantage yourself? Because that's kind of the heart under a lot of dishonesty is like, if, if they knew the truth, then they would kind of be advantaged over me. I would disadvantage myself by telling the truth. So I'm going to lie and disadvantage that other person, which, you know, makes no sense as someone who's walking in Christ. Okay, one more, one more category. Um, verse 11, Paul says, Here, that is, here in Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. My question is, why does Paul have to say that? Why does Paul have to write to a church, hey, if you're coming together from all these different cultures, all these different backgrounds, but you are one in Christ, why does Paul have to write to the church, here, now, these divisions do not any longer exist in the way that you have been clinging to them as part of an earthly culture? Well, this fourth category that he's pointing out then are sins of discrimination. Now, as you look back at that list, Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, slave, free, you could add men, women, you could come up with other categories to add to what Paul wrote, and we could all say, obviously, people are different from one another. I mean, obviously, these different categories exist. There are different genders. There are different races and ethnicities. There are different socioeconomic classes. But the problem with our earthly system is what? It's that we assign of value to these different categories. And instead of treating one another as equals, fashioned in God's image, broken, fallen, marred, but fashioned in God's image, loved by God, we assign a high value to certain categories and a low value to certain categories, and that is the essence of prejudice or discrimination. Instead of treating people as functional ontological equals before God. 
and therefore as a Christian culture, okay? And my question here is who, that is, it could be an individual or it could be a category of people, but who do you look down on and feel superior to? You may say, like, I don't know if I'm better than them, but I know I'm better than her. Well, why? I know that my people are better than their people. Why? It's probably a sin of discrimination. And as I summarize this first section, I want to say this, this list of sins is obviously not exhaustive. You can find other lists of sins. But Paul's just being suggestive of the kinds of things that characterize the earth, earthly culture, people who are not right with God, just doing their own thing. And he's summarizing with these different categories. And he's saying, here's what we tend to do in our flesh. We tend to desire, divide, discriminate, and deceive one another. And before I move on, and this is important, I want you to know something about these different categories I just gave you. As I led off with what Paul led off with, which is this whole pile of sexual sins, progressives, moderns, you know, People who are probably more socially liberal may hear that today, may even say, look, I believe in God, but, but that stuff that the Bible teaches is, again, so prudish, so close-minded, you know, to the point of being harmful. Because now, you know, with 2,000 more years of human development, we know better. We know that, you know, we can do what we want with our passions, and it's not any of it dirty. It's not any of it bad. That's just a label you Christians put on people to try to control them. And progressives have a very hard time identifying that whole pile of stuff as being sinful, as being something they ought to cut off. But at the same time, because Paul's not afraid of offending anyone, more conservative and traditional types of cultures and types of people very often are categorized by the last of these categories, which is that they, they hold prejudices, long-held prejudices in their heart, and they feel superior to another people group. And they may say, like, look, I'm not, I'm not against Hispanics. I'm just against illegal immigration, right? And, and maybe you are, but a lot of times do you not see in conservative traditional cultures sometimes a hatred, a contempt leaks in that back door of just, I, I just want legal immigration, and different kinds of prejudices that exist in traditional cultures, men sometimes domineering women, um, the, the, the wealthy automatically having the positions of power and authority, even in churches, over everyone else, even if they're not generous people who follow God. Okay, so I, I just want to say, Paul's point is, you may be coming from this side of the social spectrum, and this set of sins offends you, or you may be coming from the very conservative side, and this set of sins offends you, and we're all in the middle with anger in our hearts and dishonesty and deceit, because that's everybody. That's not a liberal or a conservative thing. That's a human thing without God. And all he's saying is, this is what I hear him saying, to come to Christ and to be found in Christ means that you sit here and especially with the areas of, the, of God's word that you're like, man, I do not agree with that on its face. That, that rubs me the wrong way. But what we do is instead of putting the Bible underneath us and saying, my words over his words, I stand on this, I do what I want, that's crazy stuff. What we do is we say, God, what it means to follow Christ is I submit myself to your authority. And you know, where is this especially hard? It's hard to obey where you disagree. It's not hard to obey where you agree with, like, yeah, I think lying's wrong. I've been really hurt by lying, so 
Don't have a problem with that. Oh, but prejudice. Don't talk to me about that. That's not what I'm doing. So we're all in the same boat, as it were. Now, I want to come back to this and just ask um, if the, the, the central command here with, now what do we do with these four categories of sin and other stuff? He doesn't say do better, right? Here's four categories of stuff, do better, try harder. He says three different ways. He says, put it to death, put it away, put it off. Okay, back when I worked at this Christian camp in North Carolina, we would find copperheads, that's a poisonous kind of snake in North Carolina, um, all over the place on this campsite. And when we found them, we would kill them. We would not relocate them because if they bit a small child, which a lot of the camps were children's camps, that child could lose their life potentially or at least lose a limb from the poison getting into their system. So when we found them, we would pin them down and we would cut their head off. Now, what was interesting, I've shared this before with some of you, is we, we had this little thing where we'd have styrofoam cups, you know, just so the kids could get water on the, on the uh, ball fields and stuff. And sometimes you'd put that head by itself in the cup. Now, after you've put something to death in your life, something that's deadly and dangerous and poisonous like the snake, what do you think you should do with that head? So what was interesting is this decapitated snake head, if you take a stick or a long piece of grass and you poke it, do you know what that head does? It bites the stick by itself, separated from the body, okay? And what Paul is doing here is giving us a warning that you need to cut certain things off in your life and move on, and you, you don't go back and be like, oh, that's kind of poke, poke. Let's kind of play with that. Let's kind of toy with that and see what happens because it'll still get you, Okay? Or I want you to imagine, because Paul is using this metaphor, and we'll go into this next week, Lord willing, but I, wanna, I want you to imagine or remember the time in your life when you were absolutely the dirtiest, the filthiest, the grimiest that you have ever been, okay? I mean, at the same camp, we always had these um, excursions. We had these treasure hunts, and we would set up these big things for all the campers, and it'd be like a late Saturday night, and for hours, they would be traipsing all over the woods in the mud, you know, swimming through creeks. And by the time we got done with that, people were exhausted and there wasn't a square inch of your body that just wasn't caked with dried mud and patches of stuff. I mean, you had mud in your ears that like, felt like it was coming out for days. Now, I, I just want you to picture that. So you're coming to get clean and you take off that pile of clothes and it's sitting there by the shower. You jump in the shower, you know, shampoo your hair, you scrub yourself as clean as you can be, completely wash off, dry off, get out, and put the clothes right back on. And this is what Paul is using as a metaphor to say, don't do that. When you have put it off and that stuff is filthy and it's no longer characteristic of the new person that you are coming out of the shower, you know, with God on your side, don't go back and put those things right back on. Now, reason, and these next three will go quickly, but the reason, why not? Why not? And there's a negative and a positive here. He says, because the sins that bring God's wrath, that's the negative side, don't define you anymore, and that's the positive side. The sins that bring God's wrath don't define you anymore, okay? Now, look at verse six. He says, on account of these, the things I just told you to put to death, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. 
And of course, this is another thing our culture scoffs at, doesn't want to hear about. Don't, don't talk to me about a God of wrath. I want a God of grace. I want a God of love. I want a God of kindness. Don't give me a God of wrath. That's like the Old Testament, angry, vindictive, just always worked up God, right? No. No, and, and, and when people think I would never follow a God that expresses anything he feels with something that you could use the word wrath to describe. Um, the, the real issue is you don't see any reason in your life for a holy, perfect God to get worked up over anything that you believe, desire, or do. That's the real issue. Is that as you evaluate yourself, you put yourself somewhere that like the eternal law of the universe doesn't put you. And I want you just for a moment to put yourself on the victim's side of a lot of these sins that Paul just described. Put yourself on the side of the abused. Put yourself on the side of the exploited. How bad do those sins of someone else hurt you or even harm you? Like do real, lasting, serious harm. And I think Paul's point, because this is God's point, is if you saw someone that you loved deeply and you saw that this was happening to them, how would you feel about it? Well, too bad for them. You know, would you feel ambivalent? Would you feel dismissive? Or would you feel some righteous indignation? And do you see how a holy God who loves you in love, in love can experience wrath because we are taking the image of God in other people and even in ourselves, and we are just wrecking it. And God is saying, because I love you, because I care about you, you can't keep doing these kinds of things to these other people and even to your own self in a form of self-harm without me getting upset about it. Let's say, just to, to flip the analogy a little bit, let's say that you had a child who became an addict Okay, would you look at that thing in your child's life, the thing that's destroying them, and everyone knows it except maybe them, and maybe they know it too. But would you look at that thing in their life and just be like, eh, that's a shame. That's really too bad. You certainly wouldn't feel warm feelings toward the thing that they are addicted to. You would feel anger. You would feel hatred. Because the opposite of love is not hate. It's basically apathy. It's just not caring at all. Indifference. So God is angry against the kinds of things that Paul describes here because they're wrecking the people that he loves. They're wrecking you. They're wrecking me. They're wrecking people around us in our orbit. And he's saying, put it off because these are the kinds of things that are bringing my wrath, my anger, my discipline. Now, the positive side of that, I said the sins that bring God's wrath don't define you anymore. He says in verse seven, in these you once walked when you were living in them, verses nine and 10, but you have put off the old self with his practices and you've put on the new self. You took off the pile of nasty clothes. You left it, you walked away, you got clean. You put on a new set of clothes. Okay, so he's saying, these things no longer define you. You are dead to them. That is not your new identity going forward in Christ because I've forgiven you of that. I've washed you of that. Why would you go back and pick it up again? Why would you go back and play with the snake's head again? 
when these things are not indicative of who you are right now. So question, what's something in your life right now that God hates because of what it's doing to you? Because God is on your side, because God loves you, because God is for you, what would God look down and say, I'm not indifferent toward that thing in your life, Matt, because I care about you too much to not be worked up over it in a holy and beautiful way? Or what's something in your life right now that God hates because of what it's doing to someone else? Where is that mismatch? Where is that contradiction between who Christ says you are and the person that you're acting as if you are, okay? So that's the reason to change. Avoid the wrath, embrace the person that you are, but how? How do you do that? Verse 10, he says, your new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is a really quick point, but it's an important one. Is being renewed is a passive voice verb. In other words, God is not saying, put off the junk, get yourself in the shower, scrub like crazy, work, 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 work. You gotta renew, you gotta get yourself clean and then put on this other stuff. He's actually saying, I'm the one renewing you. As we said two weeks ago, if you have to fix your mind, get your mind right so that first and foremost, you are thinking as God thinks, you are desiring as God desires, you're loving what God loves, you need a renewed mind. You need to think differently, desire differently. And what God says here in this text that's so beautiful is he's basically saying, and that's my work. That's what I'm up to in your life, Christian. As you trust me, as you follow me, as you worship me, I'm doing this renewal. So your point three, what's my ability to do what you're talking about, this whole putting off, cutting off stuff that I love, that I enjoy? How do I do that? The ability is that your creator, he uses that word here. He says, your creator is recreating you. He's doing it. He made you in the first place and he made you in his image. We all messed it up, but he's doing this renewal. He's doing this restoration. He's doing this new creation. Then finally, the result, verse 11. After he goes through this whole list of prejudices that are now gone in Christ, he says, these things do not define the church. They do not define the new nature. What's the result? Verse 11, Christ is all and in all. Here's the result. Christ is as we do this, as we fight for this in our lives and in our communities, Christ is seen as supremely worthy. See, how does the world view stuff when you say, I value Jesus enough to get rid of stuff in my life that is making me less of a person that looks like him? I'm getting rid of stuff in my life that is harmful to other people, even though I like to lie sometimes, even though I like to slander sometimes, even though I like to blow up and get angry sometimes, even though I like to sleep around sometimes, even though I, you could go through your whole list of things and say, even though I treasure that in my flesh, God is more valuable to me than any of that stuff. He's more important. And I don't want to miss heaven with him forever because I've, I've loved and embraced the stuff that he died to set me free from. 
God's more desirable than gold or sex or winning an argument or getting your way. He's everything, going back to the therefore, he's everything because he's died. He's put all, understand, this is how this is how practical this is. He's like, you know all the sins I just listed, whether it's a liberal sin, a conservative sin, it's everybody's sin, does it? Like Jesus is hanging there on the cross and he's basically like, I'll, I'll take your fornication. I will take your long-standing patterns of deceit. That prejudice that you feel in your heart toward maybe another sex, maybe another ethnicity, maybe another social, I'm, put that on me and treat me as a discriminator so that you and I are free, you and I are clean, you and I are forgiven. Put to death everything that doesn't look like Jesus. Let me just end with this, another practical way of thinking about this. Um, If you don't know, yesterday was one of the most important days in our state's history uh, because of what happened up in Rocky Mountain National Park. Wednesday, the East Troublesome Fire ran 21 miles in one day, okay? consumed 100,000 acres in one day. Yesterday was the exact same type of weather conditions. I mean, up on the divide, we had wind, winds, steady winds of 40, 50 miles an hour, gusts of 80 to 100 miles an hour all day long, and a wall of fire a mile west of Estes Park. So what do the firefighters do? Which, by the way, are incredibly brave, heroic, amazing men and women. Amazing. Instead of sitting back right at the edge of town and just saying, like, well, we're going to do our best right here. I mean, listening to the radio chatter off and on yesterday, the phrase was used, we're going to take the fight to the fire. We're going into the park. We're going to meet it there, and we're going to punch it down over and over and over again there where it is instead of just sitting back and playing defense. And they, I mean, in many instances, as you probably know, they fight fire with fire. They kill something so it doesn't literally come into town and kill them. That's another way to think about what Paul's saying. Instead of just sitting back, Christian, and being like, well, you know, I've, I believe in God. I've punched my ticket. I, I know where I'm going someday. Great. That's, and that's probably true of many or most of you. But don't just sit back then with this contentment of, you know, yeah, I've got some stuff in my life that doesn't please God, doesn't look like him. It looks like the old nature. I've put it back on the old person that I was. It's, it's earthly, I get it, but it's not that bad. I mean, number one, see it and treat it as like how deadly those fires running. Um, at one point, a fire ran 80 football fields in a minute. Okay, we got to treat the sin in our lives like that. Like maybe it seems like it's kind of laid down a little bit right now, but at any moment, and you don't control this, it could flare up and kill you. And Paul's saying to show the supreme worthiness of Christ in your life, go take the fight to the sin and be done with it where it's at. So God gets the glory, you get the freedom, you get the joy. Let's pray.